0: Good morning, everyone. My name is David Cassidy. I'm the senior pastor here at Spanish River Church. Great joy to be with you today. If you're new with us, I hope I can greet you personally after the service today. Met uh, so many new folks in the first service. Always a great joy to welcome everyone. We've got a huge week ahead. Tremendous week coming. Uh, The annual Spanish River Church Planters Summit begins a little bit later this week going through next weekend. People are going to be gathering from all around the world and from all around the country, MVPs, VIPs of Kingdom Advance gathering here together, many of you hosting them in your homes, and a whole army of volunteers working together to encourage all of these folks who are doing so much to pioneer new works in the gospel around the world, around this region, around the country. Can't wait for it to get started. We need to keep that very much in our prayers. Several hundred of you have been gathering every Wednesday evening for our Grace and Truth series. Just a reminder that because of the Church Planning Summit, that's not going to be meeting this week, all right? So jump ahead to the following week, and we'll be regathering, carrying that uh, important series forward. Thank you to everybody who's been attending. Thank you for all the questions that you're asking, so helpful, and we'll continue to explore that together. But I wanna ask you today to pray with me for the Church planner Summit. The fact that there are so many people working hard, volunteering, opening homes, all of those things, that's great, but at the end of the day, the Holy Ghost has to show up. And the scriptures say that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And one of the very first marks of a humble heart is saying, Lord, we need you, as we sang here just a moment ago. And so we're gonna do that in prayer for the Planner Summit. I'm so thankful for Al Barth, the director of our church planting ministry. Thankful for our church, yeah, and the church planting board. Oh, they're gonna be interviewing hours and hours and hours of potential candidates for funding for future church plants. These guys work so hard, so thankful for them. Let's pray and ask God's blessing over that work, shall we? Father, thank you for the advance of the kingdom, for new churches being planted here and around the world. Thank you for the stewardship that you've entrusted to this congregation to be engaged in that ministry. Thank you, Lord, that it began so long ago with David Nicholas' vision. Thank you for the way Tommy did all of that work. Thank you for Ron and all of his involvement and engagement. Now, Lord, in this day, we pray that you will further that work, deepen that work, extend that work, And we pray that you will show up with your power, your mercy, your grace. Give safe journeys to those who are coming. Uh, Give them health, give them peace and grant that in all that takes place over these coming days, you would be glorified, the church would be edified and the gospel will be forwarded in the world because Jesus' name is being magnified. And we thank you for this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we're in a study on the book of Galatians, and so of course, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Deuteronomy. That's in the Old, <laughs> that's in the old Testament. Uh, in chapter seven, you go, well, if we're studying Galatians, why are we turning to the book of Deuteronomy? Well, central to what's going on in Paul's letter to the Galatians is an underlying theme which bursts forth in splendor that we could simply summarize as being free from slavery. We are free from the slavery of the law, free from the slavery that we had to sin and to death. And all of this has happened through the great liberator, Jesus Christ, who has come to, in his words, set us free. If the son sets you free, Jesus said, you will be free indeed. And that happens through his grace and his mercy. Paul, of course, an eminent, prominent Jewish theologian in his day, could not have been writing about freedom and liberty without the backdrop, the core narrative that was part of Israel's identity of liberation from slavery in Egypt as God came with the signs, the plagues, and ultimately the great Passover that led to their deliverance. Moses was sent saying, let my people go that they may come and worship me. And so God saw his people, he put it this way, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt, I have heard their cry, and I have come down to deliver them. And so he did. So God intervenes with his power and his mercy and his grace, and he rescues them from from slavery, and he's bringing them into their inheritance. That's at the backdrop. That's at the root of everything that Paul is saying in Galatians. You and I are liberated free people in Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, the ultimate agent from heaven who comes to say, let my people go. From a tyranny that was greater than anything Pharaoh or any dictatorial power could have ever imposed on any people. Jesus has freed us. Thanks be to God. And so all of that is at the core of what Paul is saying. Israel comes out of Egypt, goes out into the wilderness. They make their way to the promised land. It's an 11-day journey. They turned it into 40 years. They took the wrong exit. And so they're wandering around out there for 40 years, and finally you come to the end of Moses' life. He's passing the baton onto Joshua. And... He is giving them his final instructions, his final message, his final word to wilderness people who are liberated, struggling, and about to enter the promised land. That's what Deuteronomy is. Moses' final words to free people who are getting ready to enter their inheritance. And in chapter seven, these liberated people are addressed this way. Look at it in verse six. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. This is the word of the Lord. God is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and his covenant here is described as the covenant of love. God liberates his people and brings them into his love. That's been so central in everything we've been studying in Galatians. When Paul talks about the Holy Spirit, he can't mention the Holy Spirit without almost immediately talking about the love of God. In Romans chapter five, he says, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And when he talks about being brought to life by the Spirit and living in the Spirit, in Galatians chapter five, he says the Holy Spirit produces fruit in us. And he says the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, the very first thing he mentions. But of course, as the Apostle John reminds us, we love God because he first loved us. He has taken the initiative. He's the one who comes to liberate us. He sets his love on us. And I want us to think today deeply as we come to the Lord's table about the covenant love that God has for us. You know, in the last decade or so, it's not love songs which have been the most prominent in our culture. I don't know if you knew that or not. Not so many great love songs being written these days. It's all breakup songs, From Billie Eilish to, you you know, Taylor Swift. It's all breakup songs. And I've got them down. I got billboards, 55 top breakup songs. I'm gonna spare you the whole list this morning. But number one, all too well, the 10-minute version where Taylor Swift recounts how horrible the broken relationship was and really gangs up on her her former partner. But really, she's throughout the list, including we will never, ever be together. And some of you I know are Swifties, and that's fine. And some of you are going, who's Taylor Swift? And that's all right, too. Welcome to Spanish River, where some of us are hip, and some of us are just, "Well, I got a hip. Okay. It's all going on here. But the love that God has for us, unlike all human loves, is an unbreakable love. God never sings any breakup songs. God's love is, let me give it to you. Here's the first word, steadfast. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, Jeremiah wrote. His mercies never come to an end, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's love is a steadfast love. You see it here in verse nine. Know therefore today that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. Now, a thousand generations is kind of biblical hyperbole. You don't take it literally. It's not as if you showed up in generation 1001, God would say, oh, sorry, you're out. I was only gonna love to the thousandth generation." No, when it says that God's love is a covenant that's to a thousand generations. It means it's a love that lasts forever and ever. It never comes to an end. Great is your faithfulness. It's, it says here covenant love. The old Hebrew word for covenant, barit, comes from a root that means to cut. And of course, if you cut something, it means you're going to bleed God says, This is my covenant that I'm making with you. When Jesus sits with his apostles at the table, he says, Behold, as he holds up the cup, my blood of the covenant, which is shed for you and for many. Jesus, when he says, This is my blood of the covenant, never follows that with saying, Where's yours? Where's your blood? Where's the power of your promise? He doesn't ask for our sacrifice. He makes it all his own. It is his blood that is shed. Our promises, our vows, are found broken and scattered on the floor. Our blood is not holy. But his is spotless. He makes the covenant and he does it because he is the only, listen to this, God is the only person in the universe and beyond it with absolutely perfect, steadfast love. It is an unchanging love. Even if you have a couple who love each other deeply, have been married for decades, they will tell you that over the years, their love has waxed and waned. It has gone up and down. There have been times of distance and nearness, times of delight and times of conflict. But what you will find with God God's love is the unchanging love. It is the unbreakable love. It is the steadfast love. It is the faithful love that never lets you go. He is relentless in his pursuit, his passionate delight in you. He will come for you. And Paul put it this way nothing, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How beautiful. You say, well, pastor, you don't know how I've messed up this week. I know we've messed up this week. You don't know where I woke up this morning. That's okay, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, you can confess your sin. You can turn from your sin. You can put your faith in Christ because God's love for you is something which is steadfast. It is unchangeable, and it is also, here's the second thing, sovereign. God's love is sovereign. Sovereign. Look at verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all people. It was because the Lord Loved you and kept the oath, the covenant, you see, that he swore to your ancestors. He's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he brought you out with a mighty hand. Why did God choose us? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And God says to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were more beautiful, you were more wealthy, you were more. You are more academically and professionally accomplished. That's why I chose you. God does not choose people on the basis of the potential that we have to be something. Now, that's not how we choose. If we make choices, we make choices about who can produce the most for our company, who can make us look the best, who can help our team the most. Many of us know the pain of that process of choosing. When I was small, I was placed on a seventh grade basketball team. There really wasn't any way uh, to be cut. If you signed up, you were on the team. And we we were doing laps around the gym, and the coach looked at me, he said, Cassidy, You're slow, but you're fat. I said, well, thank you, coach, that's fantastic. He had a tremendous gift of encouragement. I was always the last kid chosen until I had a growth spurt, right? And and then then but but boy early on I was like, you know, they're choosing up sides. It was just the most humiliating thing in the world. Everybody else was chosen. I was always the last kid chosen for the team, always the last one. And you just kind of shuffle out there. Well, where am I gonna play? Well, you go out there to left field and stand there and hope to God nothing gets hit your direction. God, Paul says in First Corinthians, he writes to the Corinthians who were kind of full of themselves, and he says, not Not many wise, not many noble. No, God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God chooses the rejects. God chooses the fools. A person said to me one time, I don't like the church. It's like a bowl of granola, it's full of fruit, flakes, and nuts. I said, you must be a pastor. (laughs) But the truth is, we are the fools. We are the rejects. But here's the amazing thing about God's grace. God has chosen the fools. God has chosen the rejects. God has chosen, he says, the things that are not to shame those that are. God has chosen to take the people who are weak so that he can show his power through him. God looked at the Babylonians and go, oh man, the Babylonians, look at all that power and might. Look at the Assyrians with their military. Look, Look at the Egyptians with their intellectual prowess and their agricultural power. He didn't take the Egyptians. He didn't take the Babylonians. He didn't take the Assyrians. He took this little little messed up, goofed up family of people who were always fighting with each other and couldn't turn the right direction in the wilderness and said, I'll take them and I'll show the whole world how powerful I am. That's who I want. And that's what God's done with us he took you. And you you think God chose you because he looked at you and went, oh, now we can get on with the job. Oh, if I could just get that guy to, you know, like, like the day I answered an altar call and gave my life to Jesus, God looked down and went, man, that's a relief. Glad we finally got that guy. Now we can get on with it. Not at all. God chooses the weak and the foolish but it's a sovereign love. It's not an earned love. You see, sovereignty like that is merciful. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on your potential. It's merciful. God's sovereignty is merciful. It is his bond. And it is, my friends, a strong bond. It is an unbreakable bond. Look what he says here in verse six. You are... A holy people to the Lord. He has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. A treasured possession. That's an important phrase. I don't want you to miss that. You could just skip right past it, the treasured possession. But the treasured possession refers to a particular part of the king's wealth. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the king owned everything, owned all the land, owned the people, owned all the resources. Really, ultimately, the king had everything. It was all his. There's an echo of it in Psalm 24, talking about God's own kingship. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. God is king over even those people who reject him. He is king and sovereign over all those who hate him. Everything belongs to him. And yet every king in the ancient world had, even though they owned everything, a treasured possession. A treasured possession. A treasured possession were the most valuable of all gemstones. A reserve fund, if you will, of precious metals. The kind of thing which, if everything else was collapsing, was the part that was guarded with the strongest of forces because it would keep everything else going. It was the secure possession, the treasured possession. He owned everything. The king owned everything. But here was the treasured possession. And God says to Israel, I own the whole world. I own the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. But you, you, you're my treasured possession. You are my gemstones. You are my wealth. You are my inheritance. You know you have Jesus as your inheritance. One of the most astonishing things in the Bible is that God says that we are his inheritance. We are the gift the Father makes to his Son, Jesus. Jesus. And so all the most powerful of the military were guarding that treasured possession. Around you, my friends, are the holy angels. Around you, my friend, are, is the power of God's promise drenching you, saturating you is the presence of the Holy Spirit who has brought you to life and will lead you and guide you and keep you a pillar of fire in the night and a cloud by day because God dwells with you and in you and upon you through the Holy Spirit. You are his treasured possession. No one, Jesus said, can steal you out of my hand. The love that God has for us, friends, is unbreakable. But that is why in chapter six, After the great Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Moses goes on to tell them in chapter six, when you get into the land, when you get into the land, And listen to this, this is Deuteronomy chapter six. And when when you are flourishing and your, your houses are filled with all kinds of good things that you didn't provide and wells you didn't dig and vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant and you eat and you're satisfied, be careful, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out. Don't forget The problem with prosperity, the problem with the promised land is that you forget what it took to get us there. And that's why Jesus, when he brings his disciples to the table, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, this is my body broken for you, he says, and as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, this do in remembrance of me why because the love of God lastly friends is sacrificial it's sacrificial verse 8 it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery and the power of Pharaoh. He redeemed you. Redemption. That's an economic term. It's a term that was used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the ancient world, both in Egypt and among the Greeks and the Romans, for what you paid to get a slave out of his chains. I'm redeeming you, I'm gonna pay the price. How did God redeem Egypt? He sent Moses. And he said, Moses, I want you to go to everybody and I want you to tell the head of every household, I want you to tell him to take a lamb. And I want you to slay the lamb and I want you to all gather around a table and eat a feast together of that lamb but I want you to take the blood of the lamb and I want you to put it on the doorposts and on the, all around the door. I want you to put it all around there and everybody who sits in that house around that table under the blood of that lamb that, that you get, the, the lamb for your household, as the, as the angel of death passes through the, the streets, he will pass over All of those who are seated at the table, he will pass over and they will not die. They they will not experience judgment. They will hear the cries and the despair of it, but they will experience joy. And tomorrow in the morning when they rise up, they'll go out, they'll be free. Take a lamb. But all of it was pointing forward to the day when a prophet greater than Moses would come on the scene in Israel named John the Baptist. And when he saw Jesus, he did not say, behold, a lamb. Oh no, oh no. He said, behold, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And he doesn't tell us, go get him. No, he comes for us. He doesn't say to us, well, you're gonna have to slay him. He dies for us, he lays his life down. And his blood is applied over the doorposts of our heart, Everyone who gathers at this table is under the Passover blood, not of a lamb, but the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's a table big enough for every nation under heaven, not just for Israel. This is a table big enough for every Jew, every Gentile, every rich person, every poor person. This is a table big enough for every man and woman and child, every every person from Brazil, every person from Ecuador, every person from Peru, every person from the United States, every person from England and Russia and Ukraine all around the same table from China and from Japan and from all over the world because he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There is no place where his redemption does not reach. And so the only issue is this. Do we recognize this? Do we just go, oh, well, you know, that's it's communion. Uh, yeah, it's, or do we know what happened here? Do we know that it's a sign of love? The love of God, the steadfast, sovereign, strong and sacrificial love of God. You see, whenever God gives us covenant, he gives a sign. Abraham, he gave circumcision. With Noah, he put a bow in the sky. They knew what a bow was. They'd never seen a bow like that one. But a bow is a weapon of war. And if the bow is like this, which way is the arrow pointed? Up. God said to Noah and to the world, I'll take the arrow. It's pointed at me, not at you. I'll take the judgment. My friends, we deserve death. We deserve everlasting damnation. But Jesus said, I'll take the penalty. I'll take the arrow. I'm the covenant maker, you're the covenant breaker, but I will heal you and I'll forgive you. And here's how we're gonna do it. I'm gonna die for you. I'm gonna go to hell for you. And then I'm gonna rise from the dead for you. And the efficacy of my sacrifice is so great, so powerful, that it'll cleanse heaven itself. It'll liberate everybody in hell. And it'll take away all the sins of your heart. And I will remember them no more. And I'll send my spirit, and it'll make your hard heart soft. And I'll give you the gift of eternal life. You say, Well, how do I receive that? You need to get around the table, you need to get under the blood, you need to come to the feast. Because then judgment will pass over you. And the blessing of God will come upon you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, covenant-making, covenant-keeping Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb at the center of the throne, before whom all angels and all the company of heaven cry holy and worthy, we bow before you. And we thank you. I pray that any here who have not yet put their trust in you will do so. I pray that all those who are weak in faith will find their faith strengthened. I pray all that are fearful here today will find themselves in the embrace of your mercy, the perfect love that casts out all fear. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna do communion differently. In the past, you would have just picked something up on your way in. But today, we're gonna to ask you to come to the table. There are tables in the back, tables here at the front. Ushers are going to dismiss you by rows. Folks in the balcony, please stay seated. We don't want you wandering in the wilderness of the balcony. That could prove dangerous. You will be brought communion, all right? But for those seated down here, the dividing, is, the dividing place on going back there or up here is this rail that runs right across the center here. And the ushers will dismiss you by row and you'll be served at the tables here. With those who are serving at the table please come forward and go to your tables where you're serving this morning. And we're going to invite you, all who've put their faith and hope in Jesus to come to the table. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. And this do, Jesus said, in remembrance of me so we never forget his love. Brothers and sisters, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then this table is for you. It is not a reward for how well you've been doing. It is the necessary food for the souls of the starving. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty. If you've put your faith in Jesus and you say I'm a follower of Jesus then we want you to come. If you've not yet put your faith in Jesus then just remain seated. Stay where you're stay where you're at and ponder the covenant love of God that sends his son to die for you. Think about it. Ponder that. Pray about it. See what it would mean for you to come and be a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we set aside this bread and this wine from common use unto sacred purpose. Pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts and on us that through them we might have communion in the body and blood of Christ. Amen. When you come forward, you'll take the, 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 the bread and the, the cup and please make a choice on wine or juice in accordance with your conscience and then go back to your seat with it and we'll all eat and drink together. I have a little bit more light? Thank you. I just want to make sure it's safe for travel. All right, ushers. Thank you. Brothers and sisters, come to the table.